Welcome to Startup the Science, a podcast by Enom, the Innovation Network for Advanced Materials. Enom brings together companies, researchers, and investors working in the advanced materials space for the purposes of knowledge sharing and collaboration. We do this through our programs, events, and initiatives like the podcast you are listening to. In this podcast, we interview inspirational founders, experts, and investors and get a closer look at what they do. This is your host, Taha Adnan, and let's start up the science. On this episode of Start Up the Science, we interview Ferdinand Rudolf Bartels, General Manager at Specs and Chairman of the Enom Board. This episode was hosted by Enom's Managing Director, Oliver Hassett. Well, a very warm welcome to Ferdinand Rudolf Bartels. Hello, nice to be here. Who's joining us for the next podcast of Start Up the Science, the Enum podcast that has been ongoing for three seasons now. We're absolutely pleased to have Ferdinand here, not today as the chairman of the board of Enum, which he has been since 2017, but in his role as managing director, CEO of a high-tech enterprise. And it is exactly this what we want to talk about. But before we dive into the subject, uh, Ferdinand, you know much better your life than I do. Perhaps tell us a bit about your history and what brought you not only to Enum, but <laughs> to the companies that you're leading at the moment. Well, yeah, let's start at the end. Um, I'm a material scientist from education, which brought me to Enum. Uh, when I came to Berlin almost eight years ago now, um, I wanted to to do something besides my work, which is more in science and physics. Uh, and uh, the Enum network provided me an opportunity to work with startups in the field of advanced materials, and I enjoyed that uh, a lot. And I'm still enjoying that that a lot. Uh, but. From a business perspective, I'm actually educated or made most of my experience working with uh, larger corporates in Europe, uh, companies like Degussa, which is not uh, Degussa anymore, Ironic today, uh, many years with uh, Hereos, another relatively sizable company here where I made my industrial experience, mostly in, in electronic materials. So I have uh, some experience or quite some experience in, in Asian expansion where most of the electronic industry is nowadays. Uh, and that was in the beginning of the 90s. There was a big trend first to Southeast Asia, then up to China, moving north. Uh, and so I did that for about 15, 16 years of my professional life before I moved on to scientific equipment uh, mm -hmm. businesses, which I'm responsible for now. So that's my my background. I'm a born German, North German, <laughs> living in Austria. Uh, so I enjoy the mountains. Uh, come here to Berlin to, to do my work, but I'm enjoying to come home to my new home place uh, in Austria. Okay, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Now, what then made you leave the safe haven of corporate life? Safe. That's a different topic and go into the, let's say, rather more challenging life of a medium, small to medium sized uh, scientific equipment. Let's call it deep tech, hardware deep tech enterprise in a situation where this enterprise might not have been in the best of its shape. Well, I guess that's a multiple of reasons and I, I could create some going backwards, but I think the most one was that I was looking for an opportunity to handle the business in all its aspects. Uh, you know, even if you are a division manager or a business unit manager or something in, in a larger corporate, uh, most of the, a lot of functions are being not under your control. You don't have to deal with treasury, you don't have to deal with banks, you don't typically don't deal with any tax issues and so on, because this is all centralized for good reasons. Uh, if you work in a company, so specs a company I'm responsible for at the moment, that's about 150 people here in Berlin and about 180 worldwide. Uh, here on the very first day, you call the banks. Uh, and, and that's something which is... Um, 
it teaches you a lesson. It teaches you that uh, running a business is more than just having a production and products and customers. Uh, it has to do with financing. It has to do with uh, uh, a lot of contractual work, uh, not only with the banks, but to an extent, of course, also with the customers. And, and, and the completeness of that business uh, element that was attractive to me and I wanted to you want, I wanted to prove myself that I can deal with uh, these situations, even if they are more complex than what you would expect that you are being trained in as a material scientist, for example. Even if you have industry experience uh, dealing with taxes, dealing with legal, dealing with banks, uh, well, it's a new field and, and, uh, and enjoyed that a lot and I'm still doing. Yeah. I guess the, 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 the English term general manager really captures as well because you are responsible for Yes. Everything in general, as opposed to, let's say, line manager, which yes. is a corporate term where, in fact, yeah. you have to uh, look at just at a certain number of things. Now, when you, when you came uh, to the company, um, in what situation did you find it in and uh, where, did you, where did it stand, both from the historical perspective as um, with a view to where it was at that point in time? Well, when I came to Specs, which, um, as I said, which is a medium-sized, a classical medium-sized company founded in 1983 by a bunch of physics graduates, uh, thinking that they were really, really smart, and probably they were really, really smart, and they little by little built that business for the next 15 years. It was still quite small. Um, <laughs> it underwent quite some critical times, found a shareholder that actually provided them enough liquidity. So they made it into the 2000s, 2004, 2005, and then they were rapidly growing because it was a change in industry. Um, the, the universities were in need of more fully equipped systems, not only just components. So they suddenly they began to sell large systems. And this growth period that happened over almost 10 years uh, killed the company almost because the liquidity wasn't there. Uh, so the growth wasn't, uh, and they, they never got to the point to finance growth rates by profits that they generated or the liquidity that they generated. So they basically always lived on, on, on shareholder credits or bank credits uh, to finance the next steps of growth. And you can do that for a certain period of time and then suddenly it stops. Banks getting nervous, shareholders are getting nervous, uh, and they're asking when I'm going to get my money back. Uh, and you cannot continuously tell them the growth story forever. Yeah. Uh, and that was the point when I, when I came. So the company had a relatively stable business. Um, so when, I, when we talk about turnaround here, we are not talking about companies which are in bankruptcy or close to bankruptcy. We're talking about businesses that have difficulties maybe have um, making losses. So classical name of a turnaround is you, you, you turn something from a negative to a positive. Well, to the positive to the negative is also a turnaround probably. You don't get but much credit for it. You want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we were in, in, in such a situation. So there was an existing business and the customer's base was good, but uh, there wasn't the profitability at the, at the level which the shareholder was happy about. Uh, and, and that's where we started. Uh, that's where we, we, we started to turn things around and improve the liquidity, improve the profitability of the company, not focusing too much on growth, uh, focusing on stabilizing the situation before we then went uh, back into R&D programs to foster further growth step by step. And now uh, we are growing things since three, four years now quite steadily and the company is quite profitable. In the meantime, it has been sold to the uh, RIG Foundation, mm -hmm. uh, which is the, provides a very, very stable and supportive shareholder structure for the company, which is also extremely positive. Yeah, so in a way, it was a classical turnaround uh, situation because we turned it from making losses most of the time, having liquidity, liquidity issues most of the time into something where that is behind us and I hope for the foreseeable future behind us. Uh, you can't uh, predict the future, but uh, I think the company is currently doing so. Yeah, uh, and I think the situation resonates very well with the startups that we usually take care of. They are not in a, you know, they're, they're facing similar situations at a certain point in their history or in their 
trajectory uh, where they have to decide how to grow and uh, where you know they might not be able to raise more money at a particular point in time and they need to get into profitability uh, with other means. Um, so so uh, extremely relevant uh, to, the, to the let's say part of the target audience of our podcast. Now when you when you started at Specs, did you were you fully aware of the situation? Um, or was it like uh, you have not been fully informed of, um, I'm not talking about details, no, but no, no, on no, a general no, level. I wouldn't be able to share any details, but uh, I mean, when you get into a new situation, regardless whether it's a smaller or a bigger company, when you start with a new company, uh, you can get quite some information. I mean, the numbers don't lie. Uh, they're in front of you. You can look at the annual reports. They don't lie to you. They, they tell you what's what's there in terms of numbers. But it doesn't tell you uh, how happy or unhappy customers are. It doesn't tell you how the is the team functioning or not functioning. Is the product portfolio healthy in principle? And there are some other things that are causing the, the issues. Uh, is there a team that actually is uh, working together? Do they... Do, do the people in the company even understand that there is a problem? Uh, that, that's a big portion of um, turnaround work or generally business improvements is the question. Do the people actually understand that there is an improvement necessary or even possible? Or there is a general belief that they have done already the best they can and there's just no way of improving things? Or even to the point which happen very often in startups that grow, just uh, on Friday, I've been visiting a company which is undergoing a tremendous growth from being a very small startup suddenly going into double digits in sale in over eight, in, in just eighteen months. Um, and and you get people there in the organization that are because there's a lot of stress. They 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 wish the good old times to be back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the good old times where things are tend to be slower, at least feels like a bit slower. Um, and this type of uh, atmosphere and this type of uh, culture, you, you cannot predict. You can visit the company two, three times, uh, which, which as a new general manager, you seldom do before you start, but in principle, you could do that, but you, will, you won't get that. It's still, a, it's, there's still an element of surprise when you get in. Yeah. I can imagine, yeah. I mean, and we know that even uh, annual reports might not even be so <laughs> true. I don't. I'm not saying that this in, in this particular case has been the case. But I would never say they're not true. It's just they could also be misleading. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> they could lead you to wrong assumptions. Let's say. Um, now, did you did you start uh, alone, or did you come in with a team um, of, of of managers? Or no, I I, I came in alone, uh, but uh, I brought along with me some outside help. Uh, people that I worked with in, in various other, other jobs, uh, people that have an understanding about how to establish a project management, how to establish some cultural changes in company. Yeah. So I, I used them, if I might say that word for it. Um, and they're good friends of mine. So I, they helped me in, in, in occasions here a few months, there a few months to, to get things going. Yeah. Uh, but in this particular case, the situation was very favorable because there was a team there which uh, didn't need much um, bonding. Uh, the team was uh, established relatively quickly and uh, it worked from day one or day two or day five, whatever yeah. it was at the end, I don't remember. Um, and to this day, the, the team is just excellent uh, in performance and excellent in motivation and drives the business forward. That's generally, as anyway, one of the key lessons or key messages that, that I would like to get across is uh, if you are with your business in a critical situation, from whatever nature it is, the management team, the few people that you can trust or the few people that you can build trust in, depending on, on whether you are new or not, is a key element. So you go in there alone, you can be as smart as you want, you're not going to get anything done. Um, if you walk in and it's not a five-people company, of course, you can work with everybody, but if it's a little bigger organization and maybe some people who are not fully committed or not fully working at the company, just partially working there, still some in the universities, so what do I know? Um, it's critically important to identify in the very early days and weeks 
who are the people that I can rely on? What's the management team, the core team that I can create here um, so that this business can be turned around? Uh, more important than talking to customers, more important than talking into, to the banks, more important than talking to uh, looking at the outstanding payments and, and warehouse values and whatever you might want to look into first. Uh, I would first to look into the eyes of the people. Uh, the ones that you're going to rely on anyway. If you can win them and if you can form a team, the chances of being successful in the turnaround situation is significantly higher than if you have to fight the management team. Most likely you won't succeed then anyway. Yeah, I think, I think um, that is a very, very interesting lesson. Um, and of course, you will, you will have to be in a situation where you have time to do this. When you're facing insolvency or bankruptcy issues, no, yeah, and every day counts, you no. obviously just have to you know, go through and do whatever is necessary. Yeah, it's, to, a, it, yeah, to it's a crisis. The... It's a crisis situation, definitely. And again, as I mentioned, it's not an insolvency or bankruptcy immediate threat because there is still a shareholder that's committed to the business, and the shareholder is hiring you or is asking you. If now, if you're a founder of a startup and might have a shareholder also, he's asking you that, uh, please change something because I'm not happy with the results. Uh, that's, a, that's a good and a bad message. So the bad message, of course, is the results are disappointing, but most likely you know that yourself. Um, the good message is that the shareholder gives you a sign of trust. He tells you that I believe in the business, I believe in the company, I believe in you also, and I want you to turn things around uh, and improve the situation. And that should give you at least enough time to look around and have uh, spending the few hours per day, the few days uh, in a month that you devote to your management team, trying to get them on board. Once you've done that, things will accelerate automatically. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the amount of time you win once you have established such, such a team is worth the few days you're going to lose initially. Yeah? And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, it's no way in a larger organization you cannot get everybody on board. Uh, it's a communication. It's impossible. No, you can't. So you have to focus on your, on your team. And I guess it's also that team then that gives you or helps you get the information that are not that is not in the annual reports and that are not exactly. visible to you. Yes, yes. And then and let's stay with the people for a second now. <laughs> uh, don't choose the ones that are generally always uh, yes, they are the ones that are coming to you and telling you how great they are, how happy they are that you are around. Uh, and uh, now you need to look for the ones that are generally motivated, but very critical and open-minded to the situation. They can, that you have the feeling that they can handle even the negative news. Mm -hmm. They can handle it and they stay motivated. If you go for the ones which are only thinking that if they agree to every argument that you bring on the table, you don't need that. That's not going to help you because if you go in there, you're going to make mistakes. Any, anybody, if anybody has ever been in a critical situation in a company and tells me that, that he or she didn't make any mistakes, generally lying. I mean, you make a lot of mistakes uh, because it's a crisis situation. And uh, the best you can hope for is that you make a few more good decisions than bad decisions. And if you have people around you that have a long history with the company and have a deep knowledge about your products, the product that the company is making, and they can help you to avoid one or two bad decisions that all can already turn the tide towards the positive. Mm -hmm. uh, people that only agree with you won't help you. They, they won't give you the criticisms. They're not going to tell you that idea isn't going to work. They're going to tell you yes, and then you find out later. Yeah. Uh, so that's something still on the people side that's critical. Were the original founders still involved? No, not in this case. Uh, the original founder was uh, just a financial investor. Who I, I was typically joking. It was an angel investor who forgot to get out. <laughs> <laughs> so he stayed in there for 30 years. Uh, 
and normally angel investors move out after some years. I mean, he, he, he went in the company when it was less than a million in revenue mm -hmm. and he was still there when it was uh, more than 30 million in revenue. He stayed there for a really, really long time. Um, and, and, but he was never active in the business. He was not in the field of physics, not in the field of uh, science, uh, actually was in the field of pharmacy, pharmaceutical products. So I think in terms of strategy, what to do when you enter uh, in such a situation in a business, we've touched on people. Um, before we move on, let's let's dwell a bit upon the products and the markets that the company is actually at the moment targeting or offering, and whether that has been different in the past. And that leads us then obviously to what strategies have been uh, you employed to, to, to move at the product yeah, yeah. and top line <clears throat> into the right direction. I mean, let, let's... Generally, let's let's look a little bit on what could be the reasons for businesses not performing very well. Very obvious reason is you have the wrong product. So it's, if it's really the wrong product, that means if you have come up with something which is not living up to the expectations because it's just not good enough. Mm -hmm. There's in the years you developed it, somebody else came up with something which is much much better. Um, and there's little or nothing you can do about it. Um, I think it's seldom the case, but let's assume for a moment it is. You have a product which is substandard to whatever is currently standard on the market. That's a runaway situation. That's not a turnaround situation. <laughs> that is something which I, I think nobody can do a miracle in that. Uh, we, we are in a competitive field. And, and if it's uh, technically or scientifically, there is something better in the field and you cannot match that, it's, it's, a turn or, it's not a turnaround situation. In most cases, yes, I would say almost in all cases that I've seen, um, that's not the case. Typically, products invented, uh, they need the requirements they meet the standards of what customers are looking for mm -hmm. very typically it's something else that's missing uh, it's not the product as such sometimes it's that you don't add enough value to the product uh, so you have to upscale a little bit uh, and or maybe a lot in order to make the invention that you came up with into something that really the market sees the value in Uh, so you need to, it's, that's a lot of investment and that's a, the change situation. Very often happens, uh, very, very often happens. Sometimes um, you have to uh, look downstream because some of the ingredients you are using to make your product, some of these technologies you are using to make your products are so special or hard to get, come by that you need to make some changes here so that uh, your potential profits are not being eaten up by your suppliers. Mm. <laughs> so it happens more, more than once. It's not too, it's not too rare. So, and then it's, that's probably half of it, I would say. Uh, probably half of it. The biggest portion is um, lack of structures and the lack of self-awareness of what you're good at and what you're not so good at. Um, many young companies don't have internal structures that allow them to be successful. Mm -hmm. So the failure starts not at the beginning where the product is being invented. It's not even starting with the first customers. It starts with the 10th, 15th customer tens or fifteen sale. Suddenly you enter the, the valley of death out there. Mm -hmm. uh, customers are buying your product. You're not able to service the customer properly. You're not able to provide them with the same quality product for the second, third, and fourth and fifth buy. So you have variations in your, in your product quality. Or you have logistic issues which you just totally overlooked. And things like things like that. Uh, so the, the the processes and the structures in your company don't work. And these are actually the easiest cases. <laughs> uh, technically, they are the easiest cases uh, because then and, and they're they're also the cheapest. Uh, when you need to upstream your product, you probably have to 
spend a lot of money on equipment uh, when you have to work on on changing something in your own material flow you probably have to spend a lot of money on development if you only have to change the structures of your company it doesn't need any of that uh, you can mostly do it yourself so that is the easiest situation uh, at the end of course it depends on that you do a proper um, analysis of the situation and come up with the with the right conclusions on where to fix things, of course. And just to recap, where we're talking about when we say products, we're talking high precision, high tech measurement instruments that we are doing. Yes, that, uh, that are mostly, as I understand, purchased by research institutes, universities. Yeah, about eighty percent is uh, purchased by research institutes, twenty percent by companies, larger companies that are doing research. Mm -hmm. uh, we do sub-nano surface analysis and uh, we measure um, the compositions on the surface, but we also measure the electronic states in the surface. So there is stuff which is important in superconductivity, in solar cells, in battery research, uh, pharmaceutical research, and, and, and so on. So it's it's something that uh, just being a poor material scientist, not everything of it, I understand 100%, not always. <laughs> uh, but uh, as I typically say, sometimes I have a good idea what the technology is for. <laughs> so that helps. Yeah, but it's, it's complicated equipment. Uh, our systems have a price tag of something between half a million and 1.5 million euros. So you don't just buy it just like that quickly. Um, typically, there are long sales process involved, uh, and that also means if you have if you want to improve a situation, you have to be you have to be very patient. Um, development cycles are long, um, so when you make a right decision, a good decision, uh, you have to be prepared to wait for three to five years to prove it that this was uh, a good and, uh, and and a positive and a profitable profitable decision. That's the way it is. I know in, in, in many other activities, this is faster. Uh, if you are directly in, in materials, if you're in software or anything, that uh, tend to be, tends to be much faster. But then in our business, once you made the right decision, it's also going to last longer. <laughs> so it has pluses and minuses like an airplane. But I could imagine, I mean, knowing a bit the sales cycles in the public sector in general, but also in the university space in particular, that is certainly something which requires a very, let's say, sophisticated working capital management, right? Because probably once you get the order, the sales order, then you customize the product or is it mostly off the shelf? No, it's not off the shelf. Mostly it's customized. Yeah. Um, it's certain modules which are standardized, but the way you put the modules together, then it's, uh, well, it's yes. Like in automotive sales, if you go in, you change the wheel, you change the tire, change the color, you change, yeah. change your engine and so on. So there are millions of variations. And of course, in our case, um, this is the same. So a sales process takes up to three years uh, from a customer order to the final acceptance, typically one year to 18 months. Um, so it's a long time that goes. Um, big issues, for example, is currency exchange. So we see it right now at the moment uh, with euro and dollar getting parity, uh, which is good for us if we sell in the euro area, uh, producing in Europe, so that works for us. But the re reverse situation is really, really bad. For us. Um, so that's something that can hit in your uh, profits. It can hit in your liquidity quite a bit. Uh, we're having, as everybody knows, we're having a lot of supply chain issues, not only in Europe, everywhere we have it. So now you have here a machine that is, uh, has a value of a million euros or so, and you have one single part missing. Uh, and a customer, the supplier is not delivering it, and then you sit on 999,000 euros and waiting to be delivered, and you have to finance that. Um, so the contracts with the customers, the contracts with the banks are really, really yeah. Uh, like all the heavy equipment builders, or special equipment builders, uh, liquidity management is uh, key issues in this field. If you don't do that well, you can make as much profits as you want, you're going to be in trouble. So is there anything that you brought in you in liquidity management uh, or was that a particular focus when you, when you came in? Yeah, I mean, I, I would tend to say that we... we changed pretty much everything 
that comes to my mind is, uh, um, I mean, when you when you build equipment, one of the fundamental decisions you have to make is: Do you want to build to order or do you want to build to stock? And it's a difficult decision, but it's also an extremely important decision that uh, you don't make mistakes here. If you build on stock, your delivery time is going to go down, but your financing needs going to go up. Uh, and your flexibility goes down. Uh, because what's, what you have on stock might not be exactly what the customer wants. And if you customize most of your products, you're, by Murphy's Law, you're going to end up with something you're missing. So at the same time, if you build, if you order everything, if you buy everything on order or build everything on order and through the entire chain of manufacturing, uh, which is, as I mentioned, very, very long, your manufacturing time becomes too long for the customer to accept. So he might still accept 12 months, but if you tell him it's going to be 24 months, he might say, no, I go to the competition where it gives me 12 months. Uh, and here they have to, to make a good decision on some products, some elements of the systems, which tend to be more standardized, to build them on stock and then to build the system on order. Mm -hmm. And if you manage this carefully and if you then go to your suppliers and you sign good contracts with them or you negotiate good contracts with them, at the end of the day, you can reduce the waste, which... Not, not so much devaluation, uh, so not over age stock, yeah. and you can um, reduce the material quota. And the material quota for equipment manufacturers is, well, the holy grail of making money. <laughs> you get the material quota down, you make money, material quota goes up, uh, you have something to explain to your shareholders. <laughs> that's that's the way it is. So we 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 changed that process a lot. We implemented an ERP system to have more transparency on it. We implemented a project management system, including at the beginning we did it in paperwork, where you can add implement the project. I I seeing a lot of small companies, up to ten people, that come along with the most sophisticated uh, project software, ticket software, whatever it is, and and and, and I say, well. And people, how many projects could it be? So why do you spend your time and effort on dealing with such a system when you see your, all your colleagues every day anyway? You can do this on an Excel sheet or on a piece of paper. Uh, so we implemented a project management system without software for the first 12 months before we actually implemented the software, which is now deeply rooted in the company. And it's very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. I'm not against software, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I'm, I'm thinking that the... The purpose on why you want to do project management is more important or how you want to do project management is more important than just the technical tools you are using. For it. Uh, the technical tools are, it's the same when you implement an ERP system. If anyone, if anyone in the audience uh, has an experience in implementing ERP systems, I'm, I'm sure they can relate to this comment now. First, you have to get your processes in order. And then you can implement an ERP system. Um, if you do it the other way around, the outcome is not going to be good. It can be really, really detrimental, mm -hmm. but definitely it's not going to be good. And, and a little bit, this is the same with project management. First, you establish the principles on how you want to work, what kind of projects you want to run, agile or not, and dedicated team, team members, allocated teams with disciplinary change of disciplinary reporting lines and so on uh, and once you have defined that once you have defined the principles how you want to work in your company then you can look out for who's going to supply me gives me the best software to my needs and and then and that's it uh, it's in software as a means to an end at least for this type of this type of software uh, i think in, in many respects it, it is and it's oftentimes these days not viewed as that yes it's, it's viewed as the yeah. answer to Every question. But, but the point made, a general point made is um, transparency of the numbers, transparency of the KPIs, which of course you have to know which ones you are really interested in. Um, that's a cornerstone of uh, managing a business. And it's of course a cornerstone once you want to improve a business or even to have a turnaround situation. If, if you don't know your KPIs, 
And and don't say now this is only working for SMEs with 30 million euros in sales. It works even for the small smallest uh, startup. If you don't know your profit margin, your material costs uh, of your product, if you don't know what the market price is, if you don't know the volumes that are being used out there, well, don't be surprised that uh, you will be surprised out there <laughs> and you don't want to be surprised out there because most of these surprises tend to be negative. <laughs> or if you sell the product too low, it's also a surprise that you could sold it for, an high, for, a, for, for a higher price. Now, these KPIs and transparency of the KPIs is a critical issue. And you, if you don't have that, if you don't have that in your, in your small company or if you don't have that in your bigger companies, you have to implement it. You have to implement it as fast as you can. Uh, if you don't have your KPIs, wh whether it's being liquidity or on-time delivery or material cost quota or whatever it is, if, if, if you don't have visibility over it, uh, you're not going to get it. Never all. And once you have them, then you have to manage them. And well, this is in the crisis mode, you have to manage them more tightly than in a, in a more uh, positive uh, environment where you can relax a little bit. Uh, so it's, uh, there's nothing wrong as a general manager to sign off bills every day, uh, to keep control over what's happening in the company, keep control over where the money goes. It's no harm, even if it's just a hundred euro bill. I can still sign it. It doesn't hurt me. The second thing critically important uh, in my view is establish a project manager. Just, just don't argue about it. Just look at your business and establish a project management that fits to your need, but establish one. And the project management means that you, you're not working in a continuous phase where you just keep on working and you just wait for the result and wait for the result and wait for the result. No, it's, it, it, it's good also for, let's say, for the mental health of the employees and yourself also, that, that you give the most important things that you do, you give them in the beginning and an end. And you say, I'm doing this for a purpose. And I can describe the purpose why I'm doing this, why I'm changing my product, why I'm implementing an RP system, everything. This all has a purpose and I can describe the purpose. And I can not only describe the purpose technically, I can describe it financially. I know many, when, when we talk in, in our various Atmacoms and wherever we are, um, bringing everything down to numbers, bringing everything down to financials is... It's not something people enjoy too much, but it is critically important. So don't do anything if you work with a, with a customer, if the customer even if has a big name and, and comes to you and saying, please give me your product for free and I'm doing the greatest uh, R&D with you and eventually I'm going to buy it later. Look at the financials and then decide for yourself how much money you want to spend on that opportunity. And give yourself a deadline and say, once we reach that time or once we reach that money spent, I'm going to stop. And be clear about it. Also be clear to the, to the customer about it. And say, I'm going to run this to this point, but then I looked at it. It's never going to pay back. I'd rather stop. Don't throw bad money after, after good money. Uh, very, very, very important. And this goes with everything. So I'm, I'm a big fan of project management and I'm a big fan of having this all the way in every function that a company has. Uh, because I think that is, it, it makes working easier. It is uh, easier to understand when you have a feeling that I'm not working on something for the next five years and I don't see an end when I'm saying I'm having something here, I'm going to work now for six months and then I will look at the result. And when they are positive, I'm happy. And if I'm not positive, I make changes and hopefully I can turn things around even in the project. So that's the way, that's the way I see that. I think, I think that makes, makes, makes a lot of sense because at the end of the day, it is liquidity and, and the cash in that keeps the business alive. Yes. Uh, and obviously, you have to also control that on every level um, or at least be aware of and be able to steer on every level uh, where money is spent. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, perhaps we come back to the people level again. Um, you were stressing already that that you know having a core management team, having good rapport with a core management team, is crucial. Um, but 
then when you bring all the changes to a company that you've you've uh, explained, uh, you also have to take with you, you know, not only the management team but everybody else. Not everybody else has to be a, a super loyal follower, but they have to be engaged enough and believe in the vision uh, that you bring with you for the company that uh, that they do their job at least as good as possible, if not as good as they could possibly do. I, I give a simple. I try to give a simple answer on that. Um, I think that as a general manager of any company, Gerald, or a general manager of any company, you you have to be profitable by law. I mean, simple. You have to be profitable. Your shareholder requires it from you. So this is kind of the the absolute rule. If you don't make money, then you have no purpose in business. You don't you don't have. So second important thing for me as a general manager always was is the number of jobs created to me this is critical absolutely critical when i go somewhere when i look at the situation here in berlin the lowest point was 110 or so and now it's 150 Mm -hmm. Um, so that means there are 40 more people working there and uh, that that's to me, it's a sign of success. And whenever the turnaround, also in my past, has been successful, it never was successful by now we are half the size uh, and we call that a success. Now, at the end of the day, and it might take years, but at the end of the day, there are more people working than, than before. And the motivating effect, there's nothing more. It's a disaster for the company culture if you have layoffs. It's a disaster. It's, it's something where a, com- a company recovers from. Of course it does. It takes time to recover. But the, the price is high. And if a company is hiring, if a company is growing, it creates a positive momentum. Everybody wants to work in a company that is, uh, is growing, where new employees are coming and hopefully they're staying for a long time. And then... The only thing, and I'm, I'm saying it's not easy, the only thing you have to do is then to create a work environment where people maybe not have to come to work every day. I think that's too much people ask for, and, and, and it wouldn't even be true for me. I have my Mondays too. Um, no, but uh, where the general atmosphere at work, the general environment at work so positively that uh, this is not felt as, a, as harmful to go to the company that you most of the time enjoy to go to work every morning uh, and, and, and that the work environment is uh, generally positive. Uh, that's more important than having each and every aspect of your strategy or your financials distributed and communicated to every people and every group in the company. Not everyone is interested in every detail of a strategy. Just imagine in our case where it's very technical, very physics related, uh, and not everybody has a diploma in quantum physics. And some of it is difficult to understand without a physics diploma. So that's not so... But if you can go in front of uh, your team in your company and, and, and say, look, we did good. We did well. Uh, we can pay a bonus, which is always great. But we did well. We are more people than last year. To me, it means something. And I have the feeling it means something to most people in, in our company and every company I work for so far. That is, that's to me, is, is a critical thing. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine very well that people love to be part of a bigger thing that's developing positively. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and one, more, one more point. One more point is if you are working in, let's say, in Germany, in Austria, in Switzerland, and, and yes, anywhere in Europe, it doesn't really matter. And, and you manage that your company is growing. It's growing in size and profitability and number of employees. The people don't have an issue then if you open a subsidiary in the United States or China or Japan or wherever it does, and it, and it further fosters uh, the strength of the company. Uh, the situation only turns into something negative if you tell them we're going to be half the people here in, in two years and it's going to be well, uh, 501 in Japan or Philippines or wherever. Um, so so that, that's also an element. So, um, stay some focus to the headquarters is my, my message here. <laughs> uh, 
uh, oh, what true. I think is what I think is strong. But let, let me make, make one comment to me very important in turnaround situations, particularly in young companies. Typically, in young companies, the founder is the shareholder is the general manager. Very typical. And turnaround situations are mentally difficult to cope with because first of all, you have to tell yourself that. Don't underestimate when I when when I came. Most of my jobs, I said I made a lot of mistakes. But initially, I came as a new guy. I came in as a general manager, as a new guy who knew something about the business, but not hasn't never worked there. And of course, I don't have a history of making mistakes. Anymore. That makes my life a little easier. Mm -hmm. If you're having a, to make some severe changes in your company, but you are the founder of the company, the first one you have to talk to is to yourself. Because most likely, a big number of the mistakes you did yourself. And one of the messages I want to bring across is, don't have any fear. Don't panic. But be honest to yourself. It doesn't help if you look for scapegoats in the rest of your team if the fundamental issues are starting with yourself. If you don't analyze your own mistakes, if you don't learn from your mistakes, if you don't correct the mistakes that you made, well, it's, it's a bad start for a turnaround situation. It's also a bad start because who can you, how will you believe that anybody else can follow you? And the second point is once you have analyzed your mistakes, I, mean, I know in Atmacom we constantly teach the people about team and diversity, different talents in the team. If you have assessed your mistakes and if you have assessed the chances that you, with your personality, are able to make the changes to yourself to turn this business into something successful, then most likely it will not. A consequence might be that you are not the one that is a perfect general manager for a company. Maybe your friend is, maybe a colleague in your team is the best general manager and you happen to be the best R&D person or whatever it is. Uh, the most critical decisions to make are the ones that affect you directly. <laughs> it's easier to make decisions for other people, but the ones that affect you directly are the most difficult to make, but they are in, in, in these circumstances the most important you assess your situation, and if I, at the beginning of this conversation I talked about the team, now you picture yourself in that team. And you picture yourself in, with your strengths and your weaknesses. And then you ask yourself, in my current position, in my current role, am I the strongest player in that team, in that function? Or am I part of the problem and not part of the solution? Uh, people that moving to the right place in the company at the right time, uh, they deserve the credit for not being in the way of the company being being successful. So that's an element. So when you when you when you go into such a situation, is uh, no fear, no panic. Uh, every startup, every young company goes at least once through these times. I've hardly seen anyone that has never been in such a situation. And it's going to happen most likely with every company through the lifespan of a company and numerous times to, to, to see some difficulties uh, on it. Um, that shouldn't worry anybody out there. It's, that's normal, I would say. Uh, so no, no fear, no panic, but do an honest assessment of your own talents uh, because that means the most to the success of your company. And, and, and I believe that all of you started because not because of, of abundance of egos, because you wanted your technology, your innovation to succeed in the marketplace. So you have to do whatever it takes, even if it means you have to take some consequences on yourself, change your behavior, uh, go back to school, learn something which you haven't learned before, or find a way to rearrange your team so that it's functioning. One way of doing it. Many ways of doing it. Uh, you just have to pick the right one. <laughs> and by the way, this also will tremendously 
please the shareholders if you have angel investors or generally any kind of investor group uh, that is committed to the to your company and committed to your to the, the business that you are in if you come to them and say i did an honest assessment of the situation and here i'm making the changes and i know there are going to be severe changes i'm really changing roles including my own and i'm changing whatever location of the company and i'm changing the product so i'm making severe changes uh, on it you win the trust uh, of the shareholders much more than if you tell them well it's going to be fine we're just going to work harder mm-hmm. uh, the, the the element of doubt is probably at your shareholder already and if you just give them the message we're going to try harder and it's not very likely that trust of your shareholder is going to grow but if you if you show the shareholder that you are willing to do everything necessary to make this a success you might even get your shareholder to help you on your liquidity issues which you most likely have in these situations <laughs> and a uh, shareholder which has liquidity is obviously a very helpful hand in such situations yes i mean most of the shareholders i've seen in in over the last years or decades by now shareholders that have already invested in a company and going through difficult times together with the company they are looking for reasons to invest they don't look for reasons not to invest um it's it's also for them difficult is to step out and walk away it's financially not, not really nice even if they have deep pockets but it's also emotionally difficult don't underestimate uh, I know very very often investors are being seen as some neutral bodies with deep pockets well I've I haven't met one of them okay. most investors that I have met or all the investors that I have met are quite committed to the areas they are invested in uh, that's the reason why many of them only investing in certain industries uh, because they really like it they enjoy to be part of that industry so when they see one of their childs of their investment babies uh, not doing very well they they're looking for a cure and if they see a promising cure they rather invest deeper than moving out too early and and well since most investors have experience and not uh, 20 years old exceptions confirm the rule um they know that companies go through cycles they, they know it uh, they, they don't panic a good investor doesn't panic i think that is a that is a very valid statement uh, good investors don't panic you as the general manager shouldn't be panicking because business goes through cycles and it's a question of how they're managed at the bottom of the cycle and before <laughs> in terms of how much do they prepare how 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 much do they use the good times to prepare for the bad times which are possibly coming yes which makes them survive Well, Ferdinand, I think uh, we're coming to a close of our conversation. Thank you so much for all these insights that you shared with us. Um, I hope the audience enjoyed the conversation as well. And um, you're most welcome to tune in to our next podcast, which will be out in a month's time. Thank you very much, everybody, and take care. Thanks, everybody.